Dory Futures Academy. Hello. This week we're looking at how you might take your first tentative steps into making immersive content and thinking spatially. And in many ways, that's just about diving in. Only by starting to block out scenes and interactions will it become clear what works and what doesn't. But how do you go about starting the equivalent of putting pen to paper? And what will inform the path you take? I'm Shahani Fernando, and this is the Story Futures Academy podcast. I find myself floating, floating, floating. Welcome to Virtual Reality. Or VR. You don't know what it's like to stand where I'm standing. Just look around you. You are going to undergo many different kinds of reactions. Today, we're talking about jumping in at the deep end and how to develop your ideas before the need to spend lots of money on the tech side. Part of this is around planning and storyboarding and maybe rummaging on eBay for cheap bits of kit like Connect Sensors, but we'll talk about that later. You might want to start having a play with a game engine. This is a software like Unity or Unreal that acts as a framework on which games and interactive experiences are designed. Or you might just want some lo-fi tools to help you visualise what you want to make, anything from Lego to a 3D drawing tool like Quill or Tiltbrush. We'll have lots of links in the programme notes on the Story Futures Academy website about everything we discussed today. So don't worry if some of it sounds a bit alien. But first, let's go on a virtual journey to explore other people's bodies with Verity McIntosh. So I'm in a virtual reality headset and in front of me and ahead, I can see a couple who are wearing no clothes at all and are just holding hands and I walk towards them and they start to talk to each other about what they love about one another's bodies. I've always been the sort of person that has kind of held a towel very tightly around me as I try and wiggle out of a wet swimming costume. Now I feel very sort of neutral about it, really. I'm trying to practice body acceptance and neutrality and be quite kind of, have some gratitude for what my body is. And it's not the sort of the body fabulous narrative, it's about the lumps and bumps that they love. I can close my eyes and I can, and of course I know how you look in my eyes, but I, that's, there's something wonderful about that. And then I get a little bit too close and I reach out and I, I touch one of them and the, their bodies effectively disperse and the voice of one of them tells me to back off. Are you comfortable with how you're interacting with my body? And I realise that I, <laughs> I have overstepped my boundaries and I've moved too close to them in this moment of intimacy, which is not my right to do so. And I think about how unusual it is to see bodies in a non-stylised way, to just have people being naked and spending time with each other and celebrating themselves. So that's a piece by Ellie Rickold and Josh Palowski, and it's called Virtual Love Islands. And that was a piece made on the MA in Virtual and Extended Realities at the University of West of England that Verity is the programme lead for. She's a senior lecturer there, but she also spent a number of years at Watershed's pervasive media studio. Today we're also joined by Kim Lee Ponton, who's a creative director at Nexus Studios, famed for its immersive experiences, animation and artistic approach to projects. She's done some incredible interactive design work for the likes of Apple, Amazon and the BBC. And recently, while at Sky, she directed a number of pieces, including Britannia VR. Welcome, both of you. So, Verity, I want to start with you because you're surrounded by students who are looking to get into this immersive world. 
what sort of questions are you asking them to think about when they first start the MA course? So one of the first things that I guess we encourage the students to do is really voraciously try out as many different things as they can. Often because we still are in a point of scarcity with the with the technology, coming to university is the first time they've really been able to try on all the different headsets, test all the different modalities. As a community, we try and rigorously look at all of the different things, see what the affordances are of MR as next to VR and AR. What are all those different things that you can design for when you have those tools and technologies at your disposal? And also almost treating it like a kind of a book club and watching mm. lots of different types of creative works discussing what we loved and hated about them, trying to kind of refine our taste. Nobody nobody really says, oh, I like film or I like TV. They say, I like this kind of thing and I really can't be doing with that kind of thing. We just haven't quite got there with the, with the language around immersive stories. And the temptation is to say, I really mm. love it. It's great. But what do you love? What do you, what do you see potential in? What is missing? What, who are you? What is your voice in this? And what difference do you want to make to this incredibly young field? <laughs> Digest everything you can get your hands on, whether that's watching things in 360 in the web browser, getting hands on a Google Cardboard, or if you're fortunate enough to have access to the more sort of expensive kit, being really voracious in digesting as much as you can in that. But it really helps to build a bit of a platform from which you can then make your own work because you've, you've developed a critical language around what you think is going on with this work. Kim Lee, in your practice, both personally and professionally, how do you start with a project? I think it definitely depends on the situation. So the brief the time available. Certainly uh, there have been many situations where the time is very short and that seems to condense things. In that case, I'll use words probably. It sounds really boring on the surface, but this is what I do. I make I make lists. <laughs> I make lists of stuff. <laughs> and it's just an easy way to work that is not overwhelming. I will start with a list in notes. <laughs> I'll write down all the ideas that I have, or if it's helpful, then I will sketch out all of the visuals that I have in my head. But it tends to be that the quickest way for me is to give each idea a kind of name and describe it in a sentence, if I can. That helps to make it concrete in the most efficient way possible. For each idea, I can then start gathering visuals for it whether they're aesthetic or interaction-inspired visuals or somewhere in between VFX or motion or... Oh, there's so many ways, aren't there, to be inspired. Mm. So it's almost like creating a kind of mood board, is it, for kind of yeah. each thing? So that, that will probably be the loose start, will be a sentence and a mood board. So there's two ways. There's either narrative, if I were making a pure narrative piece... Then I'd think about who's the protagonist and, you know, the, the typical synopsis. Journey. Pitch. Yeah, yeah. Um, who are they? What do they want? What's stopping them from, from getting what they want? What's the genre? And what do I want the takeaway to be? And in fact, that's good for most anything that you can try yeah. and make. That's a good little outliner. But um, for more product thinking, it's more detailed and it's more systematic. It's who is the audience? What's their context? How much time do they have? Where are they? What kind of device might they have access to? That kind of thinking. And then uh, what's the problem that I'd be trying to help them with? Once the world was full of wonders, but it belongs to humans now. We creatures have all but disappeared. Demons, vampires and witches hiding in plain sight, fearful of discovery. 
as my father used to say. In every ending, there is a new beginning. Discovery of Witches was a VR piece you directed which accompanied a Sky series. It really explored what embodiment could be in virtual reality, didn't it? What did you want to enable the user to do in the experience? I worked very closely with one of the producers at Sky VR Studios, Dan Bogle. There were a few iterations of the piece kicking around, but the one that we settled on was uh, particularly aligned with the sorts of things that I really love about VR, which are embodiment and um, Mm. how does your character affect the narrative and how does who you are in the narrative affect your experience of it. And so this series seems like a a really great one to explore those ideas because there are two main characters. You know, one is a witch in denial of her witchy powers and uh, one is a, a vampire who has a lot of knowledge but he's unable to access a particular piece of magic that he's been looking for for a very long time and she can access it. So in the VR piece, we scanned the set, which was a reconstruction of the Bodleian Library, which is a beautiful library in Oxford. It's very ornate. It's uh, very particular. And we were able to scan that to a very high level of realism. So you, you really feel like you're inside it when you're there. And we did volumetric capture of the two main actors. If you are Diana Bishop, the witch, you see Matthew, the vampire, and if you are him, then you see her. Professor Claremont, you're a vampire. And you're a witch. So we also did volumetric capture of Sean, the librarian. When he sees you as Diana, he's quite flirty, you know, he he fancies you a bit. (laughs) (laughs) He's got like a really particular reaction to you. It's subtle, but great. And then when you go in as Matthew, clearly you're not as personable. You know, you see yourself in the mirror as well and you're tall and gaunt and cold and Sean the librarian <laughs> is pretty standoffish. And it's it's cool to see people reacting to you differently depending on who you are, where you can see an actor from TV, you know, a, a TV star basically, volumetrically captured and you're right up, you're, you're next to them and you can interact with them and talk to them. I still think that's quite groundbreaking, even though we made that a few years ago now. And I mean, volumetric capture, because it's interesting, it, it is still an expensive technology. You know, it involves these very high-end rigs um, and studios to do it to that level, certainly, that you were doing it. For people who are new into the industry, are there cheaper alternatives or uh, new ways of capturing? Because the prices are coming down. You're now able to do stuff with your iPad. What are the kind of more experimental ways of doing it? Verity, I wonder if your students have had a play with this. Actually, a lot of the students last year, for example, just kind of got some cheap Kinect sensors from eBay, which were designed to be used with Xboxes to do kind of in-living room gesture control for games. But actually, they can be hacked quite readily and become depth sensors. So you can capture a certain amount of the, the depth and the volume of a human subject and then bring that into a games engine such as Unity and then suddenly you have this kind of extraordinary sort of body scan of a, of a physical person or an object um, and you can create some really beautiful kind of compelling effects with that. Connect sensors go for less than 100 quid and you can you can sort of scoop them up from people who are throwing out their Xboxes. And that depth kit work, we've seen that in pieces like Vestige and Zero Days. I think that's all done with the Connect as well, isn't it? And it has a lovely kind of aesthetic, quite pixelated, point cloud look to it. 
We'll put some links in the programme notes on the Story Futures Academy website of these pieces. So let's talk a little bit about aesthetics, because it's obviously one of the things that I'm sure you both think about in terms of work that's being produced. How do you start to decide what the look and feel of pieces are? Because obviously you can replicate reality, but actually some of the most interesting work um, responds to the creative limitations there are, or possibly the budgetary limitations that there are out there. And I'm thinking about things like Draw Me Close, or even things with a, a much more low poly look like many people i watched the uh, the grayson perry art club over the sort of lockdown yes. period and he said this Love wonderful that. thing where if um around the idea of portraiture that if we were going for realism then we just take photos so the, the joy of doing something else is that you're doing something else and i think that's really true in this material as much as any other um and i think what i'm really enjoying is where people do look at those limitations sometimes those sort of technical limitations or kind of experience design limitations and treat them as the fabric so for Draw Me Close, for example, you mentioned it was an amazing piece by National Theatre, working with All Seeing Eye and a number of others. And they wanted to create this very sort of emotional, dynamic relationship between the participant and a character who, who is the mother in this scene and was a live actor in real time. But the entire world that is created around you was drawn in black and white in a very kind of hand-drawn illustration way in something called Tilt Brush, which is a really easy-to-use, fantastic 3D drawing tool. Tilt Brush and Quill are really heavily used by people who want to create something that feels quite kind of painterly, sort of uh, like stepping through an image. And it's uh, great fun to use. It? It's so much fun. Anyone yeah. can get their hands <laughs> on can, it. You can lose things in it. So much fun. <laughs> So yeah, there's lots of things like that where effectively you use your controller as a paintbrush. You can select all sorts of different colours and textures. And depending on your skill with these things, you can create incredibly intricate things that you can then zoom into and zoom out of and change the scale of your own body. So there's lots that can be done with some really accessible tools without having to be kind of confident in the decoding space. So Kimberly, are there any kind of low-end tools that you use to visualise things or get things into 3D space? Or do you just launch straight into Unity? I often launch straight into Unity because you can just block things out just with literally blocks um, yeah. to get a sense of space and shape. Uh, but if I need better shapes, <laughs> then I could use, as we've been talking about, I could use Quill or Tilt Brush. There's a nice little uh, plugin that lets you just pull everything straight from Tilt Brush into Unity, which is super helpful. I've also found Medium is really good as a sculpting tool because um, mm. I'm not especially proficient with 3D programs. Um, they're kind of a bit too clicky for me. You've got to use too many clicks. Whereas, uh, yeah, Medium I've found very intuitive and you can get some pretty good results. But, yeah, otherwise it would just be older forms like Lego. You know, you can make things in Lego and figure out how, how you want things to spatially sit before you start making it. Some people feel quite nervous at the prospect of having to learn Unity or Unreal, but how easy is it really? And there are so many tutorials online. You may not be a master, but is it really important to play in this space, do you think? I honestly think that everybody should try to learn one of the game engines. I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's not crazy difficult either. And the saving grace of certainly for Unity, the online community is so helpful and there are so many tutorials about everything out there that you can pretty much teach yourself most things or find somebody who will be willing to give you a little tip if you try to help yourself first. 
I mean, I'm all self-taught for Unity, and yeah, as, as you say, I'm not I'm not an expert in it, but I can get a fair amount done. Certainly enough to prototype my own ideas, um, or to help other people prototype theirs, or to direct people who are better than me at that to direct them into a, a bigger project. Because that's key, isn't it? Just trying to be able to communicate with someone else who's then going to take the project on, build it in their own way, perhaps. But at least you've got that kind of common language and communication of what the idea is through that. Yeah, I think it's important to understand how game engines work and how different it is from linear mediums. So, you know, it's it's not like you can just come along right at the end and cut the end and put it at the start and do that in a Unity or Unreal project. Um, things are a lot more connected than that and uh, they have knock-on effects. So it's important to understand how it all works in the game engine. Um, and also it's important to prototype things quickly, check them, see if they are or aren't working, and then start again to do the next version of the prototype. So I want to move on to talking a little bit about AR because I know that's certainly an area that Nexus has been doing amazing work in. Uh, everything from the Google animals that you can search in a web browser, you know, search Emperor Penguin and suddenly you can you know, have this little penguin uh, appear in your space. Tell me a little bit about what that AR making process is like. And again, I guess what the challenges are and the differences are to thinking about VR storytelling when you sort of pivot to AR. Um, what have you learned in your time making AR experiences, Kim Lee? I mean, I'm really enjoying the distribution aspect of it. You know, uh, yeah. all the problems with VR where you you know you can make the most incredible thing in the world, but only a tiny <laughs> number of people will see it. You know, I overlooked that for a long time just because all you want to do is is make the greatest work possible. And it's so intellectually stimulating to be able to use all of your senses in this way and you know, design the worlds uh, the way you can't in any other medium. Yeah. AI has a lot of that, but at the same time, you can get it out to people on a device that pretty much everybody has. So you can get it out on mobile phones, you can get it out on web-based AR, and that is a massive plus. But the main the main consideration is that you don't know exactly where people are. So you don't know how much space they've got, how many obstacles are in the space that they're in. You can do detection now, so you can do a lot of machine learning detection, but it's it's still tricky to get it all perfectly right. Um, you know, just because you can detect it doesn't mean it the problem goes away. You kind of still have to consider it and design for it. And I find them interesting. And presumably testing is quite a challenge in a way because everyone's context is different. Part of the design process is to try and figure out who your main users would be, um, what the likely context is for them. And if, if you just say it's for everyone, it's not very helpful. So if you want to make something really accessible in AR, you have to either make it so that you can shrink it down to work in any space, or you have to make it work within a particular kind of space. And you have to visualize those affordances at the beginning of the experience to help people find the optimum space. You know, I suppose that's what design is, is helping people have the optimum version of the experience. We talked a little bit about how you can kind of curate an experience that sort of holds the hand of the audience member, both mm. in VR and AR, because they can be quite abrupt mm. Uh, experiences that you jump in and out of. Verity, what are your thoughts on that? I know you've written a bit about creating moments of respite even within experiences, and that could be the design of a room or objects to explore. Um, 
I think some makers do create narrative which is constantly driving forward. What are the kind of playful things that you have started to see perhaps in that space that give, give the audience member more choice? For the creators, it can be a bit of a shift in thinking to understand what the what the user experience is. Because if you come from something that where effectively you control a frame, you control this rectangle and your edit is everything and your shot's everything, then you kind of drive with story beats and, and sort of sharp cuts. And whereas the moment that the environment is available for the participant, particularly if the participant can move around and interact, you have to hand over some of that control to them for it to be a rewarding experience. You have to expect that if you've got detail in your room, the participant's likely to come and look at that detail and try and figure out what clues they can take from that or just kind of spend time dwelling and, and absorbing that environment. Things that may feel like absolutely sort of teeny tiny throwaway <laughs> details may actually cause real fixation for a period of time and enjoyable fixation. So the way that you think about building the scene is much more akin to a kind of immersive theatre piece where if you have something in that environment, you have to give people the time and the space to to explore it. Kimberly, actually on friction, you were talking about trying to create experiences that were as frictionless as possible. Mm. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. Where do you see the future of this technology going? I suppose I'm very aware, having made VR for a long time prior to this, I'm very aware of the friction and I still love VR but I'm still, um, sometimes it takes me a little while to put the headset on because it's not, you know, it's not just in my world. At the same time, the rewards once you get in are fantastic. So I still, I still love doing it. I think that for these mediums, these fictional layers to get into the world, I think it does need to be as ubiquitous as um, anything that you would just use in your daily life. And some of the stuff that, for instance, that Nexus have done with Google so that you search for an animal, that's something you would do already, right? You would put a search term into Google already and perhaps look for an animal to show your child. And then all you do is click on a particular type of entry there and you show a 3D lion sitting in your living room. That to me is the kind of future that we're looking for, where you don't have to know that it's AR or VR or you know, there's no um, obligation on the part of the user to learn about these new technologies. You're and it's kind of, living on a platform that we would be on anyway. That's it. You so you're, you're slipping the experience in to stuff that people are using already rather than requiring them to invest in a new piece of technology or go out and be adventurous by trying something new. And that's the way of hooking them in, really, isn't it? You know, we need to grow this industry by getting people to, you know, find pleasurable things that they want to do. And yeah, I mean, I don't know what your numbers have been on Google Animals, but I'm sure millions of people have played with that and enjoyed it. And it's a little moment of happiness, isn't it? Yeah, if, if we can offer things to people uh, that are useful to them, then I think that's a good thing. And on that note, ladies, thank you very much indeed joining us really inspiring discussion and i hope lots and lots of tips and tools for people to think about when they um, launch into their journey of making thanks very much ah thanks Shani. so there we are sage advice from some brilliant women working at the frontier of immersive storytelling download unity or unreal and have a play it's all free and there are loads of tutorials Think about the aesthetics you're going for. Is it true to life or do you want something more suggestive and animated? How is your audience going to feel through the scenes you create? And here's a little exercise for you to get you thinking spatially. 
Go for a walk and find an interesting space. Sit there for half an hour and list 15 things that the place suggests to you. How might you use it as the basis for an immersive experience? Think about what point of view you want your user to assume and listen out for sound triggers that might bring the scene to life. The humming of a bee, a skateboarder that moves past, or the overheard conversation on your right. Get the space to reveal itself and think about what your characters might be doing there. Thinking deeply about a place is a really good way to begin getting into an immersive frame of mind because that's the first thing your audience is going to do when they start an experience. They're going to try and pick up clues and directions from the things that you've created in this 3D world, be it sound, interactive objects, characters or a combination of all three. As with all the programmes in this series, you can explore the subjects we've been discussing through the links in our show notes and also by viewing the Story Futures Academy podcast pages on the website. That's storyfutures.com forward slash podcast. Join us next time when we'll be taking a deep dive into augmented reality. We'll be joined by Alex Fleetwood, head of Niantic's London studio, and some of the team behind the Wallace & Gromit AR experience, The Big Fix Up, Susan Cummings and Tavi Kelly. See you next time. Story Futures Academy is the UK's National Centre for Immersive Storytelling and is funded as part of UKRI's Audience of the Future Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund. Mm-hmm.